Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Hey, Chris. Hey, Serge. So let's talk about our first computers, command line interfaces in the future. Okay. Command lines. It's, a, it's an interesting topic because I think in the free software world, we have a pretty specific vision of what the command line is. But I think as we start to look at things, it, there, there's a lot more that we can explore about what kind of a command line experiences have been, where they kind of have been in free software, and also like, you know, maybe how they could even be pretty different how, from how we've seen it today. Yeah, I think, um, I know this is definitely a generational thing. For me, my first experience with the command line was my first computer. And uh, my first computer was the VIC-20. And you'd boot the thing up. And in a few seconds later, not even a few seconds, just you'd get a command line. You'd get basic. You were dropped into a programming language. And the manual that came with the computer talked about how to program in that language. And that was my first exposure to computers. It was, you want to do something with it? You're going to need to program. Yeah. And that, I think that attitude or that, that feeling has stayed with me my entire life. What was your first computer experience? You know, um, the first computer we had, I mentioned that my dad ran a BBS on a Commodore 64, and that was the first computer my family had was a Commodore 64. And uh, the main thing I remember from it is that it would boot up with that blue with and with white text screen, and I would type load, and I think it was like eight star one or something like that. Whenever oh, you I had a disk drive. <laughs> yeah, whenever I whenever I see that phrase, it felt like magic to me. And actually, I really didn't know anything more than that. But my dad at the time and my mom were both like entering in programs from these, you know, computer magazines and stuff like that. They, you know, kind of type in systems and stuff like that and really exploring things. Um, and uh, my and, you know, actually one of the big sources of jealousy that I had uh, in actually, I'm going to be honest, I still have it, is that when my sister was born, uh, my dad programmed a uh, uh, a little demo that had her name bouncing around the screen. He never did that for me, but I mean, he uh, he did reach out in other ways. You know, th- then we moved on to you know, uh, th- my family had a DOS machine, and I had uh, one of the big things that happened to me was that uh, at my mom's house, my grandpa gave me his old 1989 DOS computer, and I had it in my room and I couldn't do anything on it except for use DOS and QBasic and something called PC Geos, which was like a version of Windows that didn't work as well almost. And that era was when I learned a lot of my tech skills because I couldn't really do anything else interesting. Um, and I actually stopped, I kind of stopped doing any like I learned how to do some basic programming and I learned how a lot of the things about the computer worked then. And I stopped learning anything about it and forgot how all of it worked when I switched over to Windows. Uh, it wasn't until I found free software and started playing around with, you know, GNU Linux and the command line that I started to become and started to feel much more empowered and really excited about how computers work. And it brought me back there again. Yeah, I think because of our age difference, there was a little bit of difference in in our experience. I I agree with you that 
um, starting with these 8-bit computers where you you were just dropped into a programming environment as your as your primary experience gave you a sense that programming was the thing you did with a computer. Well, you got a computer, what are you going to do with it? Play games and program. And uh, I actually was using DOS for a long time and got used to DOS and then switched to, to Windows. But that wasn't a very long time. Uh, we were using Windows 3.1 and then I had Windows 95 and around Windows, and I switched to uh, GNU Linux right around the time of Windows 98. So I only had maybe a little bit less than a decade of, of complete GUI use. So for me, as you say, you know, that command line interface was almost coming home. It was, it was different and more powerful when I went, when I moved to Unix based systems, but it was in a sense coming home and uh, dive into this. What, so for so there are a few non-technical listeners. So when we talk about command line, what is, what does the command line feel like to you? Well, I mean, so there's a version that's like kind of the modern version that that I experience every day, which, you know, these days is basically bash, right? And so like, and, and Unix-y style command line, right? So if we look at that, you have all these conventions, like uh, the way that you pass around arguments to, you know, so arguments meaning like, you know, if you say, well, I want this program to write out to this specific file. You might say dash dash file and then write out the, the file name, right? And stuff like that. And then you can do things like piping things, which is where you have one program kind of shipping its information over to another file. And everything is very file system centric, kind of very based off of um, the Unix file system. And then every now and then we even have things like NCurses interfaces or, you know, like these programs that kind of take over your whole terminal, even though they aren't technically, um, like at that point, you've kind of shifted into this GUI space. They kind of, I think we lump them in with the command line, I guess, just because you're kind of sitting in that kind of command line interface. I don't know. That kind of feels like ever since I moved over to GNU Linux, that's how I kind of see the command line because that's just kind of how the command line is exposed to me every day. Well, what do you think? I have a very different view of it, actually. Um, and maybe I have a more romantic view. So when I was using DOS, running DOS commands was a pretty straightforward thing. You, you know, you ran dir, you ran individual programs, and yes, those programs could have arguments, but, but that was pretty much it. And this idea of being able to chain commands together through pipes was mind-blowing and it was revolutionary to me. And I felt like I was able to actually have, in a sense, a, a real substantive, not conversation, but real substantive communication with the computer where I could say, take this file, look for, you know, take the first column of data, take uh, words that begin with certain letters, sort the output and put it in another file. And that's pretty simple to do on the Unix command line interface where it just was impossible to do on Windows. That would have been a multi-step program, a process, or I would have had to write a computer program to do it or do it myself. And in fact, I knew people in college who were doing really simple tasks like that. Now, and even after college, and I was like, wow, you know, your boss pays you to do this. You could write a computer program to do it. And not even a whole program, just a command line, right? I could do it in you know, a few minutes. Um, and, and, but, but kind of going back to this, it was this 
much more rich experience where I felt like the computer and I were communicating uh, in a way that, the, and, and, and I, I do put end curses and other um, text interfaces, you know, even Emacs um, in a separate category, uh, Emacs being a, a separate thing, but, um, you know, those, com- you know, um, Midnight Commander is not quite the same, right, as just typing commands and getting results. And, and chaining those commands together to, to form complex thoughts and ideas. That was, that's still very powerful to me. And it has a romance to me that, uh, that um, only really saw in uh, those uh, 8-bit computers, at least for me. And I know there were other machines like Lisp machines and others where you did have much more uh, intricate and complex interactions. And maybe you have more experience with that. I, I don't. Well, you just said a bunch of interesting things. I, I think one of them was you hit home uh, that feeling about, you know, that kind of power that the command line gives you, which is, I think, what I was also trying to express, that coming back to when I, I encountered GNU Linux, I, I felt connected to my computer in a way I had in a long time. And I think, but, you know, discussing, you know, like piping together commands and stuff like that, um, you know, I guess what we're talking about here is in this vision of things, we're talking kind of specifically about, you kind of drew a distinction in some ways between how, you know, what the basics things were and what DOS were, even though they're very similar in some ways to kind of the Unix system of kind of the Unix philosophy. So maybe before we talk about these other command line type things, maybe we should flesh out what is that Unix philosophy? Sure, at least, so I think this is one of those areas where people can sit down and debate. But my feeling about what the Unix philosophy at its core is, and implementation is a secondary thing, so how it gets there is secondary to what it is. Things, things in the system should be simple, easy to understand, do very little, and programs should do one thing and one thing only, and they should do them well. So in the example I gave, right, so maybe you look at a file. That's one command, cat. It just dumps a file get the first column of data. Well, that's, uh, that's awk, right? You can just grab the first column, look for, look for uh, words that begin with certain letters. Well, that's grep, sort the output. Well, that's sort. And then we can redirect that output. And that's part of bash, just, you know, redirect to a file. So each yep. of those things is, yep. a run, is run by a different file and they're chained together. When you really care about typing in your passphrase, that's when you enter it wrong, of course. So, okay. So, so yeah. So, I think that describes the Unix philosophy pretty well. Um, the Unix philosophy, I actually think, I've read a number of things that have said that kind of the Unix philosophy was kind of constructed that way after the fact. Uh, that idea of, I think that's the phrase that people kind of repeat a lot, is that, you know, kind of two things. One is that everything's a file and that um, the... Uh, there, there's each program kind of does one thing and does it really well. And then you kind of compose that out of pieces. So, um, the, yeah, I'd like to deconstruct that. I think that for many people, their vision of what the command line is, is kind of just this thing, like the thing that we just explained because kind of, that's kind of their only exposure to that type of thing. But, you know, that idea of doing one thing and kind of one thing well that you can kind of chain together, well, A, it's kind of false to some degree because each program that you do that does one thing usually is actually composed out of, 
you know, it should be able to be composed out of many other type of systems um, in libraries and things like that. And, you know, that's that's actually fine. Um, and, you know, we, we see this in other places too. Like, for example, programming languages, most functions are composed of other functions and stuff like that. And so I actually think that that's kind of what it's really saying is that it's possible to kind of like building things up with Legos, pieces should be able to be composed of one piece, which can be composed of another piece. But I think that the place where, um, you know, where, you know, you mentioned list machines and stuff like that, um, you know, we, there have been other machines like, you know, I, the incompatible time sharing system, you know, we've even made the case that, you know, in many ways, basic systems kind of felt very command line-y. Um, you know, we, we could say that these are, uh, and even list machines, we could say that one thing these all have in common is they have something called a REPL. Um, and even stuff like the Python interpreter have this. And what REPL stands for is read, eval, print loop. And I know I'm getting pretty techy here, but um, this is actually pretty important to understand, I think, what these all have in common. The read part is really means the user enters a command. The eval part means the command happens. Um, and the print part means you see something coming out of that command. And then we do it all over again. And that's basically what the command line experience really is across kind of all of these systems. Um, would you would you say that's a pretty accurate thing about how kind of tying together all of these things in terms of how they all feel kind of command line-y? Or do you think I have it wrong? I, I think you're right. I think the ability, the more uh, simple term that a lot of people use now is, is, is a shell. But I think talking about it as a REPL, even though it's a little bit geeky, is a, is a nice way of expressing it. There were other things about Unix that, when I first got into it, were very appealing. The idea of, like, I can background a job, right? It means I can take this program and I can throw it in the background and say, come back to me when you're finished. And, and other things, um, as, I've, as I've evolved in my computer usage, I actually find that I do those things less. I use those complicated, that complicated functionality of the time sharing part of Unix far less than I used to. But I want to, and, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll circle back to this uh, a little bit, but I have actually found in, since I, so I started using um, Unix via GNU Linux in 1997, and we're recording this in 2019, I found that the command line has become less powerful for me over time. And I think it's because the data that I am working with has changed. I used to do things like take sound directly from the sound device on my computer, pipe it to a program, pipe that to another program, etc. Um, you don't really work with the system like that. And because you don't work with the system like that through uh, the simple tools, instead of being more composable, they're actually less composable, the Unix, the standard Unix tools. And when I need to do that kind of composability, I will go to a, a real, a, a scripting, what people would call a scripting language. So Python, or, or you know, it's usually for me, it's usually Python, where I can get that composability and I can take the data and make it flow through multiple stages. But I do miss just being able to do that without having to open up a specialty program. Um, I realize that that, that is kind of taking us in different directions. So I let's so I I'll be happy to pull it back and say 
what was different then? What was different in the 90s? And what was different, you know, on, in Unix in the 90s? And what was different in the 80s in these Lisp, these Lisp machines that made it more possible to do this? Was it a feature of how simple things were? Or was it a was it a feature of how we as a community computer using community well, work? I don't know. So it's it's hard. So my dad said something interesting to me, which is that you know with every generation of computer that's come out, he's become less connected to the computer. Like when he was running, you know, the Commodore sixty four, he was messing around with Basic and stuff like that. And then as you know, the DOS machine came out, he did a little bit. When Windows came out. He stopped caring about the abstractions, but still, still did some cool things. And now that the like iPad is out, you know, he just, you know, it's just this magic box for him, right? So there, but what's interesting there is that I think, you know, um, so there's this article uh, or this this story that's written by Neil Stevenson that's called "In the Beginning Was a Command Line," and the argu- one of the arguments he makes in there is that um, in a lot of operating systems, we've intentionally set up this, you know, this barrier where um, you know, well, you're not supposed to touch those computery things under the hood, right? Th- those are for, you know, the the people who are making this for you. And what is kind of, you know, has remained mostly true for quite a long time has been that there's an assumption in kind of Unixy systems that we we do want to expose those types of things. And for example, if you, in a lot of old Windows uh, programs, if you wanted to actually script the Windows program, you would actually have to script the GUI events, right? And that's pretty, you know, that's kind of like out there when you could consider just, you know, chaining together a number of commands. Um, But one of the things about like the list machines and stuff like that, that I think is interesting, well, it partly hits me, like, it feels like this layer of things where like, that kind of division between we have this version of the command line that is going to just be you know, like your direct interface with the computer versus, oh, no, no, we want to make this for the more general public. We have to make it in this GUI abstraction where we can't expose those things. We shouldn't expose those things. I think that's a really false dichotomy. Um, so I draw inspiration from things like some of the old list machines. I really recommend that people take a look at the, some of the screenshots and stuff. Um, it's, it's been pretty cool in that, you know, your, your command line was actually the programming language for the most part. Um, but you could, instead of just evaluating some expression and let's say, you know, if I wanted to generate a graph on the command line, I would, you know, have some CSV file that I'd, uh, run through graphviz or something like that. And uh, then I'd export it to a file that I'd then jump over to into GUI mode to be able to see separately in like I of GNOME or something. But in on like a Lisp REPL back in the day, you could actually run the command to generate the graph and it would print it out in the REPL itself. And you could even click on different parts of the REPL and actually do things in this same REPL interface. So it wasn't just that the only print interface that was possible was actually um, the was only text. It was actually you could embed GUIs as output things and then you could, you know, like click around and interact with them. And I think that that's really powerful and an interesting thing that um, that like for whatever reason we um, I mean, I maybe I think because of history, most people in the free software world haven't even considered that we could kind of go down that route, that we could kind of merge these two worlds. Yeah, you talk, you're, you're bringing up two very important things. And I, 
The first is just that computers in general have become so much more complicated than they were in the 8-bit era, right? It was possible with an 8-bit computer to really understand everything that a computer was doing. It didn't have those programming abstractions. It didn't have that operating system abstraction. You know, you, you could talk directly to the hardware, and that that was very powerful. And there have been a number of attempts by people to kind of reimagine what that would look like. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to break one of our rules which is we don't talk much about um you know non-free culture but since you brought up um since since you brought up one I'm going to bring up one um which is that uh, I like this YouTuber called the 8-bit guy and he has a article which I'll link to in the show notes about his perfect computer his dream computer um which it, it harkens back to a lot of this stuff being able to understand it but the second thing you talked about was that, yeah, we have in our community conflated command line interfaces with text. And we've, and uh, at least, and I think this is reduced now, but I remember people making fun of GUI users, calling it point and grunt and saying that anyone who used a GUI was a loser. And I think that that, that is, it not only is it unhelpful, but as you sh- as you're pointing out, it's just not true, right? We don't have to, we don't have to have one or the other. The two can the two can work together, and we can have much more powerful interfaces than what we have currently if if we're willing to go there. So I I, th- I think that that there's um, ways of doing that, and and, and maybe I'm going to go down a really strange uh, path. But when I think about some of this stuff. Modern computers, uh, I uh, modern beginner computers. I've been thinking about. Um, I think it's called the Arduino Playground Express, which is this little uh, microcontroller-based computer that's uh, designed as a wearable device and kind of also as a teaching tool. And it is it in itself is almost as powerful, and maybe even more powerful than, than a lot of the computers that we're talking about, the Commodore sixty four, etc. But you can still understand everything that's going on, and you can use some of these visual programming languages. So, in particular, that one I think uses MakeCode from Microsoft, which is actually a free software project. But there's also, for general purpose computers, you know, Scratch. I don't think that a programmer who is, you know, who's a child who is learning Scratch or using MakeCode has any less of an understanding of the machine than we did using basic back in the day. Yeah. Um, I actually want to talk about why is it that, so bringing up visual programming languages is an interesting thing because, you know, if we think about visual programming languages as being able to be very empowering in some ways, it feels like, well, like you can't diff a visual programming language, but like, well, no, that's not necessarily true, right? So it, I don't know if anybody... So it's kind of a problematic book in some ways because it's kind of just a giant snarkathon. But there is a book called The Unix Hater's Handbook. And one of the interesting things that comes up in there is one of the... And it was written by a bunch of people who were working on really cool, interesting operating systems from back in the day who, surprise, surprise, didn't actually like Unix. Um, even though I think many people in our culture think Unix must be kind of the and all be all of possible operating system designs. Uh, and one of the interesting things that's brought up there is the complaint about the bag of bytes being the primary abstraction layer in Unix. So the bag of bytes basically being you've got 
with it's basically criticizing that everything is a file thing because the everything is a file thing the way that we interpret file is well you've got this one abstraction and you just throw a bunch of bytes in it and then we really kind of break that down into two things that go into that bag of bytes it's either plain text in which case we assume it's something either utf-8 or ascii encoded and separated semantically by new lines all our tools will be built and optimized for this new line world right diff optimized for new lines git optimized for new lines everything pretty much optimized for new lines um it is possible to write git merge strategies that aren't new line based but that's kind of beside the point what's interesting is that you know be, you know then we have this other less desirable world which is the binary world and this ha may have actually richer data structures that don't get confused by having a you know um like some in you know having to escape new lines or things like that um, they might be able to better represent things in some plain text things even are able to but they're kind of second class citizens in the unix world and i make the argument that the reason for that is that we never standardized any core data structures that weren't just byte streams uh, and because of that we decided that the, mo the most common semantic layer that we have is new lines um you know like basically you know like hitting enter in your text file and that's kind of a bummer to me because you can actually there have been tools written where you can see like for example diffing between not just plain text files but you know you've got a lisp program and you want to merge or diff it and instead of diffing it on the text level you can actually do it on the like code structure level and the same thing with like i you know you were mentioning in the when we were talking about this before like i think you've seen some json tools that did the same sorry did the same and etc so uh, the reason i bring this up is that um a lot if we want to move beyond just plain text type systems and we don't have the data structures to be able to represent it and those are kind of second class citizens then that means that i think that it's much harder to make GUI systems, like things that are visual, be first class in the way that our text systems can be. I don't know. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And I think it, it combine, you know, it, it connects with me and my experience with why Unix seemed more powerful when I first started using it, because the, the structures I were using were plain text. And in fact, I'd go one step further. I would say that, that the tools that I was getting really good with in Unix in the early days were, you know, and I give my example of taking the first column of data, but how, how strange it is when I think about it to, to work on a visual column of data rather than um, a computer representation of a list or a vector of data, right? And well, why was I working with a column of data? Well, one could say, well, because in, I, I was using the I was using the visual representation of it uh, from a file. The other way of looking at it is, well, it's because I didn't have anything else to work with, right? Because we because we could have imagined a system where I have a, a a column of data and underneath it's represented in some data structure. But in fact, we don't. We just have, as you say, a bag of bytes, and that bag of bytes says, well, here's a here's a, a, a column with uh, tabs and new lines, right? And so, so I've, I've had to rely on this um, program to, to parse it and work with it as opposed to just having some clean internal representation. 
Yeah. We we also have weird things that I think we just assume are the way to do things like, you know, what's the file type of this file? Well, we'll just guess by looking at the three letters after a dot, you know. Well, some operating systems actually encode that information as like an important part of the file. And and like what I'm just saying here is that the assumptions that we have that just because it's the way that Unix did it doesn't have to necessarily be the optimal way to do it, even when we want to talk about powerful command line type things. But actually, I wanted to deconstruct that term powerful that I just used. Um, I do feel really powerful sometimes when using the command line. And, you know, I know we said that curses is not really necessarily command line related, but it's certainly part of the culture of command line, right? Like if I open up HTOP, I see all these cool things open in my terminal that looks like, you know, the classic hacker you know, I look like I'm running the classic hacker desktop now, and I sometimes even feel that kind of level of cool. Um, like, I feel like, man, it's so sweet to be able to have this kind of connection with my system, even when it's just like I'm running HTOP instead of like a GTK based, you know, uh, you know, same display of my processes. Um, I don't know. Is the command line powerful because it's where there's something innate or is it powerful because we've decided that's where the power users live and have just grown to accommodate it. What do you think? I, I think I think it's both. So I, I certainly see the aesthetic appeal of the command line, right? That green and amber on black interface, right? The terminal is really uh, appealing, right? Aesthetically appealing, culturally appealing. It just has a lot of power behind it, you know? Uh, I think about quote-unquote hackers and the hacker mystique, which we've talked about. Um, and I think that that aesthetic is definitely part of it. I also think that it's, that that there is an element that with the command line interface, and I'm gonna now I'm gonna add programming into that. You have a, an ability to have much more complex interactions with your system than you could with. Um, you know, just a GUI, right? Or at least the GUIs that I've worked with, where I would have to, you know, take a bunch of files, open each one up, you know, get the first column, paste it into a thing, you know, and and so so that I, I'm with you that that it it's a little bit of both. There were I'm sorry that that it that it's part of uh, just well that's where they, that's where the cool users hang out, so that's where the tools are developed. But I I, I actually think that it it can be both. Um, as you've said with, um, you know, the list machines, how, you know, there was that marrying of interfaces. I'm going to say, I'm going to say something really strange, which is, I think that in a perfect world, when I think about the, uh, some future, um, interface for a computer, a command line, right? I think about Star Trek the next generation. And I think about how, a character from that show might ask the computer to do some kind of complicated cross-referencing of all the past events and da 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 and then display that on my screen, right? It's like, take all this information and now present it to me visually so that I can further process it. And I, sorry, you go. Well, I don't know. I was just going to say that that's interesting because in some ways I actually... We are seeing something like that today, right? But it's not empowering. We've, we've, we're seeing things like, I'm going to scare quotes around this. I'm making square quote uh, marks with my fingers, but like smart speakers, right? 
And like those are listening to what people are doing and they're doing some sort of task on behalf of them. But that's very not empowering. I, I mean, or do you think you're saying something else? I think it's two things. First of all, it's who's who's in. Well, so first of all, there are starting to become free software implementations of things like that. So we need to separate out the technology from the implementation, right? The first implementations of Unix, we've been talking about Unix for, for all this time. Um, they were proprietary. So it doesn't mean that the tech, that the technology behind it is, is, is bad. It just means that the implementations are bad. I actually think that we could be doing incredibly powerful things with those kind of speaker thing interfaces, uh, voice interfaces, if we were the ones in control. And so hopefully we'll see some, some real life implementations of that, that uh, are usable soon, right? I, I'm on a Kickstarter for one of them, but um, I want to see how it turns out. The, what, what I was saying was, hey, I would like to see something that looks like voice plus the Lisp machine, right? So I want to be able to tell the computer a bunch of things, tell it to do the processing I want, display the data visually, and then work, you know, have my interface with the computer be whatever is most comfortable for working with that type of, of data, right? So for example, again, I'm going to go back to this columns example, right? It's easy for me to, to select a column of data it, it might actually be easier for me to do that than to say, computer, select the first column of data, mm -hmm. right? It just, that feels awkward. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and actually I think that we've, we can see some kind of intermediate versions of this. I actually, I know people often complain about Blender being really like having a, a complicated and hard to learn user interface. Although really, I think a lot of that is just that it's really hard to learn 3D. But I mean, when one, one thing I find really inspiring is that um, you see a lot of, or at least there's a perception that gets reinforced that it's hard to learn 3D. But anyway, you see a lot of artists who are not programmers start to become programmers in Blender because they really expose the... Um, the application as a um, as a programmable interface. If you hover over a button, it tells you what the button is, and it also shows the Python code that you could use to do the same command right underneath it. And if you click around and do a bunch of commands, there is a little log where you can select a bunch of the code that it did as Python code, copy it, and then dump it into a text editor built into the same program. So a bunch of people become programmers because they just start kind of doing the same things over and over again, copy and paste the kind of things that they're doing. And I know a number of people who were artists who became programmers through that kind of world. And I think that that kind of thing is an interesting, you know, like inspiration about how we can kind of marry those things. Uh, I don't know. Does that make sense to you? It does. Um, I think I think we should start to synthesize some of these ideas um, and, and wrap up. So... I think the first thing is that there's a, I think we, we both said that there's a power in being able to communicate with the computer via the command line. Right. And via a command line. And we both value that. Yeah, we, we both value that. And we also see that there's a, a dangerous, quote unquote, dangerous element by the mystique that that gets, that that gets balanced by the utility. And we do want people to feel that feeling of power, right? We just don't want it to be an exclusive group that gets to feel that way. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think I think maybe one more point is that we currently have maybe a lot of assumptions about how command lines can be, mainly because they're the command lines that we see every day. 
but it would be, I think it's, there's a source and an opportunity for inspiration to, you know, try to rethink some of those things. Look at some programs that have tried to rethink those things and what programs have really tried to empower people. And don't assume that just because we want to make something uh, really powerful for some users, that that means that we have to remove the ability to become empowered from it. Um, I think that it really is possible to marry those worlds. And and I'd encourage our, our listeners um, to try to, you know, try to try to take up that those arms to try to 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 in their own work, try to encourage that spreading of power as much as possible through their programs while also trying to, you know, make them accessible. And I, I don't know, I think there's a lot of room to grow and explore in the free software world. Do you agree? Yeah, I think free software ultimately is not just about having programs that are free, but having programs that are empowering to their users, which is which is one of the distinguishing features. It makes our stuff different, and we should be celebrating that difference and not just trying to replicate the proprietary world with lockdown usage and with with lockdown interfaces. We need to make things easy, but we also we also need to be making things that that are that give people who are using it ultimate power and control. So uh, I will give one little tiny teaser, um, which is we didn't talk about MUDs and we didn't talk about how powerful MUD interfaces are and all of that, but uh, uh, we'll leave that up to our listeners. In the meantime, if people want to get in touch with us, they should email podcast at LibraLounge.org, follow us on the Fediverse at, uh, at LibraLounge at floss.social, on Twitter at LibraLounge, and on our IRC channel, uh, hash Libra Lounge on Freenode. And I think that is it. Anything else, Chris? See you next time. Uh, You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joff which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on opengameart.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.